walking to daycare in the city turned into a kind of urban treasure hunt as Nate Johnson and his daughter started to notice all the little things that most of us overlook. She had that sense of childlike wonder. She hadn't learned yet to filter out the things that she was seeing. Coming up, find out what the unseen city has to show us. Would you like to explore someplace new in the great outdoors? The author of The 50 Places Recreational Guides recommends scenic destinations that are ideal for skiing, paddling, and cycling. Chris Santella finds exploring the Napa Valley is perfect on a bike. The vineyards and the other attractions there are spaced almost perfectly. A lot of them are 8 or 10 miles apart. And American humorist David Sedaris explains why he moved to Europe. You know, I just thought I lived here for 40 years, and I Mm -hmm. thought, well, that's enough. He also reveals why he went to Japan to stop smoking. Get inspired to enjoy the world around you, near and far. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Over the years, I've come to appreciate just how much our travels influence how we view our world. In fact, if we don't seize the moment, it can pass us by, and we miss something wonderful. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, author Nathaniel Johnson tells us how his young daughter helped him to take a closer look at the neighborhood where they walked every day. To answer her constant questions about just about everything they saw, he learned why so many pigeons are missing a toe, what those squirrels are really up to, and the name of that plant growing out of the crack in the sidewalk. Nate helps us to look at the nature that surrounds us in our urban wilderness with the curious eyes of a child. Also, the author of a guidebook series on top-notch places for outdoor recreation recommends scenic backdrops for bicycling, skiing, and fly fishing as we think about our travel plans for the year ahead. We'll also revisit an interview we did a few years ago with author David Sedaris. It turned into one of our most popular Travel with Rick Steves podcasts. David told us how he had to travel to stop smoking and why he enjoys living as an American expat overseas. Let's start the hour with a quick check-in with Patricia Schultz. She's the author of the best-selling book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. In fact, it nudges just a little bit ahead of the Rick Steves Italy guidebook on Amazon's top 20 list of best-selling travel books of all time. In this excerpt from our first interview with Patricia, I asked her how she came up with the Before You Die concept for her guidebooks. First and foremost, I I need to give a shout-out to my publisher, Peter Workman, who is such a brilliant man and such a visionary because while other people were saying, you know, Peter, I don't know about this before you die thing. Um, He understood that if people found it to be irreverent, that was a good thing. And if people found it to be kind of marginally alarming, that was a good thing because this isn't a dress rehearsal and time is precious. I love this quote that I read in your book, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the places and moments that take our breath away. Uh, We're talking about, in generalities here, take me to a couple of your favorite places, Patricia, in the book that actually take your breath away. I remember being in Yosemite, and it was, yeah, I know people want something more exotic like Mauritius or Madagascar. You know, Woody Allen has this great quote about, please make me two with nature. Um, He was such an urban New York City guy. He just was uncomfortable in those pristine, beautiful surroundings that was, you know, Mother Nature. I, on the other hand, felt almost like a moment of epiphany. And I felt the specialness of being surrounded, the quiet that was almost thundering. And I, in that moment, understood the preciousness we have in our national parks, uh, not only in the USA and Canada. I think they're some of the most 
stunningly beautiful slivers of natural beauty we have left on this continent. I have idyllic moments that crowd my memory because they are many of the three years that I was extremely lucky to live in Florence, Italy. And all of the times we would take off by bus or by train or sometimes hitchhiking, those were the days, into Tuscany, which I came to know very well. And people will roll their eyes and say, well, duh, Tuscany is just one big gorgeous moment. And it is, but we saw corners of it that had never seen a non-Italian and that Michelangelo would feel very comfortable in seeing as far as the eye could see the rolling hills and the cypresses and the dirt roads and the wine-growing region around Chianti that really haven't changed much Mm. at all in hundreds of years. Patricia, one thing I really enjoyed about your book was experiences. You had the hammam, the Turkish bath, chocolate to die for, uh, coaching through Bavaria, the red light district in Amsterdam. A lot of these experiences that you mentioned, in fact, are almost cliches, but I'm a big fan of cliches. I think because over the centuries, travel is nothing new, that these become cliches for very good reason. Do you want to go to Venice and not take a gondola through the back canals of Venice and see the house where Marco Polo grew up and see corners of Venice as he must have seen them pretty much unchanged just because it's tacky and touristy and expensive? Uh, No, it's almost a must-do. It's a very inherent part of the magic of Venice, as with the hammam in Istanbul or the red double-decker buses in London, a lot of people rolling their eyes. But it oftentimes is the first and only time that people will go to a particular destination. You know, the realities of going back and visiting again, who knows? There's Mm -hmm. just so many other things to see. Are you really going to return? So see it all. See the cliches. See the usual stuff. See the unusual stuff. Just see as much as you can. Hit the ground running and enjoy it as much as you can because it may be the only time you're ever there. Patricia Schultz, I've thoroughly enjoyed dreaming about the world with you. And congratulations on the huge success of your book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Thank you. Happy travels, Patricia. Thanks for joining us. Patricia Schultz returns to Travel with Rick Steves next week for a look at what's in the newly updated domestic edition of her book on A Thousand Places to See in the U.S. and Canada. Back when we first met Patricia on Travel with Rick Steves, we also met humorist David Sedaris. The well-traveled Sedaris was making plans to move from France to England, where he now makes his home as an American expat. When David joined us, he had just published When You Are Engulfed in Flames. That's the book where he describes how he figured out how to quit smoking by spending a few months in Tokyo and Hiroshima. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. When you're engulfed in flames, everybody must ask you right off the bat, where did that name come from? I needed to quit smoking, just because all the decent hotels in the United States went non-smoking, and I travel at least 60 days a year. And I can go to 30 cities in 30 days if I'm at the Ritz-Carlton, but I can't do it at the Amer Suites. So after 30 years of smoking. And I was never a self-hating smoker. You know, right. I, after 30 years, I said, okay, all right, you win. You win. <laughs> so, and I never even thought about quitting before, but I thought about quitting smoking and I thought about Tokyo. I thought I'll go to Tokyo to quit smoking huh. because I'd gone once for three days. And in the neighborhood where I was staying in Ginza, it's against the law to smoke on the street. And that doesn't have anything to do with secondhand smoke. It, it, it's because so many people were getting burned by lit cigarettes. So you have to go to a smoking station. So it's worse there even than in the United States or Paris for smokers. 
Well, inside, you can smoke your head off. Mm-hmm. In an office, in a restaurant, knock yourself out. It's just outside. So it's the opposite of the rest of the world. Hmm. And also, another reason they outlawed it is because of litter. So I went to Tokyo to quit smoking. I went to Tokyo for three months. And I went to Hiroshima. And I was in a hotel room in Hiroshima. And there was a booklet in my room that said, Best Knowledge of Disaster Damage Prevention and Favors to Ask of You. And it was broken into chapters. When you check in a hotel room, when you find a fire, and when you are engulfed in flames. And what I loved about that was that, that you would be engulfed in flames and then you'd say, damn it, what did that booklet say in my hotel? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think of it that when I look in hotel rooms, they got all the instructions, <laughs> like you're going to sit down and read calmly the instructions rather than run down the hall screaming. So, David, how long have you been living in Paris now? Uh, I think I left the United States in 1998. My boyfriend, Hugh, has a house in Normandy uh-huh. in just a little village. It's like 12 houses uh, along the side of a road. And I started going there. We would go for vacation, and I would learn a few words, and then I would go back like six months later for a week, but, and I would have forgotten everything that I learned. So I wanted to learn the language. And the best way to learn a language is to sleep with someone from that country. But if you can't do that, then moving to that country is a pretty good idea. So I, I moved to France we we got an apartment in Paris, and I was going to stay for a year. And you know, in the way that these things happen, a year turned into ten. So you've been there quite a while, and you divide your time Paris, what Paris, London, and the United States. I, I just come to the United States for work, right. but uh, I started going to London to do some things for the BBC, and then I, I I liked it, so I just got my what's called indefinite leave to remain. So I just got my green card in England. Wow. So. Now I can begin a citizenship process. I can get my British passport. I can start doing that. I had to take many tests in order to uh, get my work permit. I had to take a life in the UK test and learn like the difference between House of Lords and the House of Commons and what oh. year did women get the right to vote. Well, you know, that's quite remarkable that you grew up in the United States and you've decided not only to be like a temporary expat, but you've decided to leave. What made you want to leave the United States? You know, I just thought that I'd li- I lived here for 40 years, and I mm-hmm. thought, well, that's enough. And I come back, and I go on these tours twice a year, and I see everyone in my address book, mm-hmm. and I like being a foreigner. I like... Did 40 years in the United States, did it just you get a little complacent about that or something? And... No, I, you know, I'm not one of those people. I, I, I mean, if I had to live in the United States again, I would, but I like the way that living in another country, I like all the things you don't know when you live in another country. Like when I went to Japan, I, I did some studying before I went. I got these language CDs. Mm-hmm. They were Pimsler is what they were mm-hmm. called. And they were pretty great, I thought, because they, they taught you slogans that people actually use. Anyway, so I studied with those before I went. But, um, but you're clumsier when you're in another country, and that sort of lets you bumble around and have more fun maybe. Well, I mean, I keep walking into the doors that say pull and, and right. push. And I've been doing it for 20 years. I mean, it's not that tough to learn those words, but I kind of like it. I, I just, ah, Magoo, you've done it again. Well, I like, uh, like when I went to Tokyo for the first time, I took a train from the airport to the middle of town and I left the train station. I lit a cigarette and I looked around and I thought, oh, no one else is smoking. And then I looked and I didn't see any trash cans and I didn't see any trash. So I put the cigarette out and put it in the cuff of my pants and proceeded from there. And then I asked at the hotel, and they explained to me that you couldn't smoke on the street. Hmm. But I like that about going to another country, too. Is you, 
You watch the other people and do what they do, and it makes you more observant. Like in, in Japan, no one would stand to abreast on an escalator. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, or I never saw anyone talk on their cell phone on the subway. People paid with cash rather than credit cards. And as long as you're noticing that, then you notice, oh, wow, that, that person has a wooden leg. Or look at the crazy thing that's written on that person's T-shirt. In your book, you mentioned uh, you've never stepped foot in the Louvre. You've been in Paris for several years. Never stepped foot. After a certain point, then you think, okay, this now will be my thing. Now you can't do it. <laughs> right. No, I can't. Okay, so now it's a matter of... A... But I like Drouot. Do you ever go to Drouot? What's that? It's no. the auction house in Paris. Oh. And it used to be the only game in town. And then they changed the laws, and so now well, there's Sotheby's a... in London, similar right. thing, yeah. But now they have Christie's in, in Paris, and yeah. it's, it's opened up. But Drouot used to be the only auction house. And there are mm-hmm. 12 rooms on any given day, and you walk in... And in one room, they've got like uh, 17th century Dutch paintings. And in the next room, they've got silver. And in the next room, they've got boxes of junk. Anybody can go. I like going there because the things in the Louvre will always be there. Mm-hmm. But at Drouot, they're just there today. David Sedaris, best wishes and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rick. You're welcome. Do itashimashite. You can listen to a podcast of the full hour we enjoyed with David Sedaris back in 2008. There's a link in this week's show details at ricksteves.com slash radio. Next, we get pumped up for the great outdoors. We're at 877-333-RICK. Chris Santella thinks you need to get outside more often and have a little fun. He expands on the concept of life lists for places to see before we die in his series of more than a dozen best-selling guidebooks. They're called 50 places to ski and snowboard, go camping, bike, fly fish, paddle, or even drink beer before you die. Chris combines expert recommendations for each category with his personal favorites. He explains why they're noteworthy in locales that can be scenic and pristine or sometimes just plain gnarly. Chris, good to have you with us. Really a great pleasure, Rick. I'm holding your book, uh, 50 Places to Bike Before You Die. And uh, it's just a fascinating collection of destinations all over the world. You edited 50 experts' opinions on where they love to bike. What surprised you in that collection? What did you want to put on your bucket list? What's very interesting, I think, for all the topics and equally applicable to biking is that people come at the sport from a lot of different directions. For some people, it's really about pushing their body as hard as they can, and there are going to be people who are wanting to look at rides that have a great deal of climbs and maybe different sort of weather conditions to make it almost a kind of endurance test. And then there are people at the other end of the spectrum who are really looking to have a nice day with a a nice lunch with perhaps a bottle of wine and a good sandwich and then stay at a nice inn at the end of the day. So people come at the pastimes from a lot of different directions. So what I tried to do in terms of the people I spoke to is to reflect that broad range of appeals that the sport has for people. Okay, so let's talk about the picnic and the glass of wine at the end of the little bike ride. What would be the idyllic one, your favorite? There are probably two that come up. Uh, Napa Valley in California has been a center of a lot of uh, bike touring for a long time because I think the vineyards and, and the other attractions there are spaced almost perfectly. A lot of them are 8 or 10 miles apart. So if you're looking to do, say, a 50-mile, 60-mile day, you can ride for a bit, work up a little bit of an appetite or a little bit of a thirst. There's a place to stop. 
And at the end of the day, there are some lovely inns, of course, and first-class restaurants. So that's one of the favorites, I think, for people in North America. When you go over to Europe, uh, Provence mm. is near the top of a lot of people's lists for a lot of the same reasons. Also, from a biking perspective, the roads are relatively quiet. Not a lot of traffic, especially in Provence, a little bit more so now in Napa. But you have the same idea that those vineyards and little hill towns are separated out 10, 12 miles, so you can really mm-hmm. make a nice day. And you're biking more valleys and, and uh, riverbanks rather than over mountains, so that tends to be a right. little bit you, more relaxing you, experience. You have the option of doing a little segment if you're in Provence that's included on the, the Tour de France, but... Mm. That's not something that I think most uh, okay, cyclists that's, that's there the, will, will go uh, for, for. For the overachievers, <laughs> that's the option. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Santella. He's written a series of books, uh, 50 Places to Do This or That Before You Die, and we're reviewing some of his favorites. Their phone number is 877-333-7425, and Marty's on the line from Atlanta in Georgia. Marty, thanks for your call. Oh, hi. Thanks, Rick, and I'm really excited to speak with Chris. I love this topic. I'm an avid cyclist, and I have found a way to incorporate it in my travel pretty much anywhere I go. And one of my tricks is to help get me over jet lag and orient me to my new city. So whenever I can, I will try to book, say, a half-day bicycle trip in my city that I'm arriving in, and I've done that in Rome. I've done it in Paris. I've done it in... Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and it's a great way to see the city. So jet lag does not like exercise and bright light and fresh air, so you're overcoming that when you bike. And when you say book a half-day bike uh, experience, are you talking about just renting a bike and going on your own or taking a bicycle tour in those towns? I've done it both ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Amsterdam's easy just to rent a bike. In Rome, I booked a half-day bike tour. It was more tour than bike, which was good because I understood more about the architecture and the different layers of Rome. And my other, um, I guess, varsity level tour is also one of my favorite ways to travel. I will do a barge boat trip. Just uh, last month, I was in Croatia for a week, and we toured the national parks and the islands in Dalmatia. And that was beautiful. And that was combining uh, boating and biking? Yes. So wow, my boat, my idea. hotel room, yeah, my bed followed me as I cycled on the different islands. That was not for the novice, although a lot of these companies offer e-bikes. A lot of the Germans had the e-bikes. So and, electronic uh, bikes are very popular in Europe, and you can, some people might think that's cheating, but you can use the extra motor power as much as you like or as little as you like and still get the biking in. And it's a great family vacation. I did a bike and boat in the Netherlands. We had grandpa, we had dad, and we had grandkids, and they could all cycle. Of course, Holland is very flat, but so you're talking bike, bike and boat. Is that that's a kind of travel? Then there's different companies that organize bike and boat tours. Chris, what do you think about bike and boat? I was going to say that I think on a lot of of these tours. If it turns out that the sort of mileage involved in a given day is a little much for some members of the party, oftentimes they'll have an assist van that can scoop people up. If you do have a conventional bike and are running out of steam on that last big climb, they can come and scoop you up and catch you up to the rest of the party so Hmm. everyone can be together most of the time. Yes, there are options. This last day in Dalmatia was 
a killer. And I would say fully half of the guests opted to Mm -hmm. stay on the boat and enjoy the scenery. And we diehards, (laughs) you know, had the sweat equity of seeing beautiful Trogir as, you know, we're Mm. finally descending onto the port. And it was spectacular. So that's a great option, as you said, for a multi-generational vacation where people can pick and choose how much uh, exertion they want to incorporate into their vacation. And it's affordable. You can get, um, you know, a budget type of boat or you can, I mean, we, we saw boats that were like crazy expensive. But, yeah. you know, um, it's, it's a good package, affordable yeah. package, and everything's included, including the bikes and the guides yeah, and the food and the hotel room, which is inside the boat. It's, right. it's great. I love it. S- sounds great. Thanks, Marty. Thank you, Marty. You're welcome. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Santella about um, things to do. While you're able, let's put it that way. And Chris writes a series of books, 50 Places to Bike, 50 Places to Paddle, 50 Places to Ski, 50 Places to Drink Beer Before You Die. Hey, Chris, one of your books is about skiing and snowboarding. The cool thing about your books is they're small little bite-sized chapters that are collections of, you know, reports and sharing and stories by people who are really passionate about this or that outdoor activity. And uh, when I was reading through the book on skiing, so many interesting places, like in Colorado, for instance, there's Aspen, Steamboat, Telluride, uh, Vail. How do you choose between those if you were going to be doing the ski trip of a lifetime? Well, I think what you'll find, just looking at, say, Colorado, for an example, there are several mountains in the list there that are really geared very much towards uh expert skiers like Silverton, for example, I don't think there's anything but expert terrain. Hmm. So if you're an intermediate skier, you really want to steer away from something like that. If you look at a place like Vail or in the western side of Colorado, if you look at a place like Steamboat, there you have a great variety of different sorts of terrain. There's enough expert terrain to keep the more seasoned skier happy, but at the same time there is enough intermediate and easier terrain to keep the less seasoned skier happy, and then everyone can meet for lunch Mm -hmm. or for, you know, a snack or drinks afterward and still have that semblance of a holiday together while you can get the terrain that you want so you're not feeling bored or frightened to death. Another way to accommodate multi-generational vacations. Uh, Of course, there's all the predictable places in Europe and the United States. You also had a collection of um, an assortment of exotic destinations for skiing, Kashmir, Antarctica, Russia, Which one of the exotic destinations really struck you as fascinating and appealing? I can't say it's one that I particularly wanted to do, but you mentioned Kashmir, and that sounded like just an incredible experience. The uh, gentleman that I interviewed about that venue, he was one of the cinematographers for Warren Miller, so that's taken him all over the world to some very unique spots. But he was describing how the ski resorts were closed, because there had been bombing recently, and that's not something you encounter at at most ski resorts, Mm. but he was safe in his travels. One that I uh, did get to experience myself a few years ago was to go helicopter skiing in uh, Alaska at the Tordillo Mountain Lodge, and one of the special facets of that experience is that you get to ski with an Olympic gold medalist, uh, a guy named Tommy Moe. I remember at one point we were hovering above this peak, and I looked down and said to the person next to me, 
Haha, ha, we're going to land on that because it just looked far too precipitous to land mm. a bicycle, let alone a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the helicopter hovered above it. They said, jump out now. Oh, my god. we skied down that thing. And I'm only an intermediate skier, but this was in, the, in June and there was corn snow. So the snow was kind of soft enough that you could make turns. And the thing that was really exciting about that trip, too, is it was during the summer solstice. And we got to go skiing late at night because it was light 24 hours. So we were able to be up on the mountain as uh, summer officially started in Alaska. And is it virgin powder? Is that part of, uh, does that go hand in hand with good heliskiing? I think that for most people, it does go hand in hand. Again, the only time that I had the chance to experience it, it was during the spring. So it was more corn snow, mm-hmm. which is also fun to ski on, very different experience. But I think mm-hmm. that your so-called powder hounds, uh, they really look to heliskiing for that chance to get into powder as deep as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some of the most popular places for folks seeking deep powder are going to either be on the island of Hokkaido or in eastern British Columbia in the Chugach Mountains and mm-hmm. some of the other ranges. That seems to be where there are uh, quite a few heliski operators. Hmm. Where might one find uh, good options for heliskiing? Well, it seems like by the uh, preponderance of operators and consistently deep snow, the eastern section of British Columbia, the area around the the Bugaboos and the other mountain ranges in that part of the province is a very popular spot. And there are a number of uh, reputable operators that uh, do business there. As mentioned earlier, uh, in Alaska, there are some very good heliski operators as well. So the Bugaboos in eastern British Columbia. And the Bugaboos are are a lot of very uh, distinctive triangular-shaped rock formations, and you, they almost resemble hoodoos like you might see in, in Bryce and uh, a lot of the photographs. That's what you will notice there, so it's pretty distinctive. I'm on a roll from stomp and go hog walk for Saturday night by a night pound. So look out, cat, I'm on a prowl. I'm on a roll from stomp and go hog walk. Chris Santella has written a dozen best-selling books about outdoor adventures in his 50 Places series. His titles include recommendations from experts on downhill skiing and snowboarding, fly fishing, cycling, golf, kayaking, rafting, and camping. His latest is 50 Places to Drink Beer Before You Die. You'll find web links to his books and articles in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. One of your books, particularly fun to look through, is uh, paddling. It's not just... uh, River rafting, uh, it's different kinds of paddling and different kinds of bodies of water. Introduce us a little bit to the whole dimensions of uh, places to paddle before you die. Sure. I mean, I, I think that there are a couple different subgroups of paddlers. They're, they're the folks who like to kayak more on uh, on the sea or on uh, flatter water or calmer water. It's not always calm, but they, that's how people will describe that sort of paddling. Then there are people who are looking for more of a whitewater experience, which could either be experienced with a raft or with a kayak. And then you have the sub subtypes of kayaks. If you're in the river, you could have a, uh, a rubber kayak, which is much more forgiving, or a hard body kayak. Mm. And I would say that sort of like the biking crew we were talking about earlier, you'll have some people that like to river raft or kayak for an excuse to get out and, and be very close to the water and immerse themselves in nature and, and have a adventure away from the city or away from lots of people. 
then you'll have other people who are really looking to go out there and really challenge their their rowing or paddling skills. And they want that class four, class five water to see if they can negotiate it. Oh, man. I enjoyed reading through the... Uh, I've done a few of the uh, river rafting experiences that were listed in your book. I'm a friend of Peter Grubb, who's at River Offices oh, West. Oh, yes. And it was interesting to read his report on the uh, Owie River. And uh, I just did the Hell's Canyon. And, you know, you talk about solitude or you talk about white water. And when I think back on my river rafting experience, it's both. I mean, there are times when there's a remarkable solitude and you're just small in pristine nature. And then there is time when you are paddling for your very life and it's just that white water thrill. And uh, to choose the right river and the appropriate river is, is really uh, critical. And to get a river uh, rafting outfit that can give you the adventure without compromising your safety and also make sure there's a nice campground waiting for you with beautiful food uh, on the grill, it just can be the greatest experience. And as I was paging through your anthology, your 50 different articles on paddling, it's nice that at the end of each one, you've got a little bit of nitty-gritty where, you know, how you would get there, what's a good tour operator, and where you might sleep. Right. We, we You know, the 50 Places books are not really guidebooks per se, but I try to provide just enough information for people to begin to do some research. And most people who are going to be doing any serious traveling will be fortunate enough to have an internet connection and you can find mm-hmm. a lot of that information out there, certainly, but I try to at least steer people in the right direction. Yeah, and in fact, that's a good reminder because if I was being excited about, uh, you know, Peter Grubb and the Owie River or going down Hell's Canyon, I'd want to know where it is. I mean, Hell's Canyon is almost arguably the most remote part of in the United States. It's on this amazing stretch of the Snake River on the Idaho-Oregon border, and you just feel like you are miles and miles from anywhere. And um, with a little guidance and a little know-how and the right gear, it can be the experience of a lifetime. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris Santella, who writes a whole series of books on 50 places to do this or that before you die. And uh, it's a lot of work that you put in to collect all these anthologies. As you do this, let's just say you're into this before you die thing here. If you realized you have to die in in about six months, what are five things you would like to do before you die that you've picked up from all the research you did? Well, I just came back from uh, 100 holes of golf in two days, so I feel fairly close to, to death right now, But uh, or at least my, my back does. But my proclivities go toward fly fishing and golf. I think those are my, my two favorite pastimes. Okay, specifically then, what would you do? What I would like to do is I would like to go to Tierra del Fuego to fish for sea-run brown trout. That's something I haven't done quite yet, but I'd love to see the scenery down there. I would like to go to Ireland and play golf at an old place called Old Head that I think may have the highest greens fee in the world right now. It's about $700, I believe, to play around there, but it's out on this little spit of land that sticks out into near where the Lusitania sank, actually. Mm. I would like to go to the Seychelles, which is off the east coast of Africa, to fish for giant trevally and milkfish. That's something I would like to try. Something a little closer to home is I I do a lot of steelhead fishing with a fly rod here in Oregon, but the mecca for steelhead fishermen is northern British Columbia, and I would love to go to a place called the Sustut River and uh, have a chance to catch a 20-pound-plus steelhead, which are there in in good numbers. And let's see. We talked a little bit about uh, skiing in, in Kashmir. Again, I think you'd be going there not so much for the skiing, but for the interesting cultural combination that you encounter. So so let's say skiing in Kashmir. Let's do that at the very end, just before you're going to die anyways. Right. (laughs) 
Chris Santella, thanks so much for all your ideas and, and the inspiration that your books uh, offer, and happy travels for a long, long time. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. I hope to keep uh, pushing on for a few more years anyway. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merely, 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 life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Some of the most interesting places in our lives can be right outside your door. Up next, we explore the Unseen City on Travel with Rick Steves. This is a blessing, very powerful blessing from a Bulgarian heart and Bulgarian soul. And get ready for some Bulgarian. Surva, surva gudina, vesela gudina, červena jabolka v gradina, zlaten klas na niva, polna kašta sa slanina i kuprina, život i zdrave do gudina, do gudina, do amina. Amin. Amen. And what did you say in English? And I said roughly the following. Let this year be very fruitful. Let we have red apples on the trees. Let we have golden wheat in the fields. Silk and bacon in our home. But let us all be very healthy. Be healthy. Stefan Bozadjev from Bulgaria. Blagodaria. Blagodaria. Thank you, Rick. When you're a child, your own backyard can be filled with wonder. But over time most of us just stopped noticing. Taking walks with his inquisitive toddler stirred Nathaniel Johnson's curiosity as he struggled to answer her endless stream of questions. His book, Unseen City, details what's thriving in our own city neighborhoods and maybe right outside your front door. Nate, what got you started in this project? Well, I had a little girl, and she had that sense of childlike wonder. She hadn't learned yet to filter out uh, the things that she was seeing. So she cued me into that. There was one point I would walk with her every day, take her up to her daycare. And there was this period in her life when she was pretty young where she would just incessantly ask, Papa, what's that? What's Mm -hmm. that? What's Mm -hmm. that? And it just kind of drove me crazy because she would repeat this over and over again. I'd be saying, well, that's a tree. Yes, that's, that's actually the same tree. Still another tree. And it kind of got under my skin. I started to realize, you know, when I was a kid, I I knew the names of all the different trees. And when I became an adult, they just kind of become this gray cardboard cutout figure that I saw as tree and then dismissed. And so I made up this game to make it a little more interesting where I could only answer the same way once. So she'd Mm. say that and I'd say tree and then I'd say trunk, branch, leaves, flowers. And in this way, I saw this, there was this little yellow flower that was so tiny, I'd never seen it before. And that moment of having that just kind of materialize out of the ether, it had been there the entire time, but I'd never seen it before. And that was just kind of magical. And so I wanted to share that with, with other people. And that was, that was sort of her moment of cluing me into her way of seeing you know, I was just listening to you talk, Nate. I was just thinking when I was a little kid, I didn't have glasses for a little while after I should have had glasses. And when I finally got glasses, all of a sudden, there was more in the world than I realized there was. And walking around the block with your little kid is probably the same way. I, I was in, in your same role a long time ago, and I remember walking with my little boy around the block, and it took forever. And I was just, you know, like restless. Let's go. Let's move it. Let's, let's just stop looking at spiders. And then you can give a whole positive, uh, sort of enlightened approach to that. That's that's quite exciting. Yeah, it's that's a great metaphor. You're putting on a new pair of glasses and your children. There's this kind of universal experience as I talk to parents about this. I, I sort of am like, 
this is amazing. This happened to me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that <laughs> happens to all of us. <laughs> it really does. And, then, and then, we learn, then we learn to shed it out and be adults. Exactly. Your subtitle could also be you know, how to maintain a childlike wonder of the world around us. Yeah, how to be a child again. The subtitle of your book says the, the Wonders of the Urban Wilderness. You don't see the word urban wilderness together. It's almost there. It's almost like uh, oxymoronic. But yeah. Th- there is a wilderness in, in an urban sense, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. And this is something that biologists are really excited about right now because it's been an area where people weren't studying for a long time. There was this idea that wilderness is something far away. You know, you take your traps and you go into Yosemite and you see what kind of voles they have there or something like that. And there wasn't this recognition that the wild creatures that were living in our footprints were valid and worthy of study and worthy of watching, really. So that was kind of a fun thing. As I started my research, I realized that there was this whole scientific literature that was just boiling up and frothing at the same time. Well, as you say in your book, we almost don't take nature seriously unless it's out in the wilds, away from the cities. We even have, like, discriminatory labels of wildlife we find within the city. It's vermin and it's pests and, and this side of thing. Why, why is that? Well, it's, it's really easy to think nice things about nature or someone, you know, person. They have a relationship if they're far away. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Mm-hmm. And so... When nature is just out there in the wilderness, when you can have that kind of transcendent experience of going on vacation and going on vacation, going to a new place kind of gives you those new glasses as well. You see Mm -hmm. the world afresh because you're snapped out of that adult workaday vision that you you kind of need to, to keep you on track and focused on paying the rent. So when you don't have that, when you're in the zone of just trying to get food on the table and trying to get the kids' shoelaces tied. Ah, okay. It just gets in the way. Yeah, exactly. It's annoying. It's frustrating. It's chewing up your oatmeal. It's crawling across your pillow. It's hmm. much harder to have a romantic relationship with nature. It's like snow up in the mountains. It's, it's wondrous. Exactly. At home, it's, I can't get to work now. Our guest, Nate Johnson, teaches journalism at UC Berkeley. He writes about food for grist, and he investigates the wonderful things you can notice on an everyday walk in the neighborhood in his book, Unseen City. His website is nathanieljohnson.org, and his first name is spelled N-A-T-H-A-N-A-E-L. Hey, let's, um, let's do it this way. I'm, I'm just a, a little three-year-old, and I'm just getting used to the world, and, and you're going to take me on a little safari out, out uh, down All the right. street. We're going to go to the mailbox and get our mail and come back. I've made this walk every day for years. I bet there's things I haven't noticed. Take me on a safari. What, what would a, a child notice and be wonderstruck by that, that I should pay attention to? All right. Well, probably it would be you taking me on the safari if you're the three-year-old. But probably one of the first things that you'd notice is the, the weeds coming through the cracks in the sidewalk. Crouch down and look at, hey, look at this. There's, there's flowers here. Or what's this strange leaf shape that I've never noticed before? That's something that my kids often do, and then they want to eat it, right? And the fascinating thing is that a lot of those really tough, feral weeds that thrive in those types of situations actually are edible. And so that's one of the fun things I started to realize as I was looking at this stuff closely is that I could eat the little dandelions and the nasturtiums and the mallows and all of these things. They're not always very good. A lot of them are are pretty tough, but we could sample them together 
and at least see what they tasted like. I've seen little weeds cracking out of the concrete. That's cool. And notice the yeah. flowers and take a little taste, okay? Yeah, so you'd probably look down as a, as a kid. You're close to the ground, so you'd see that. You might also look up into the trees and notice what types of trees we have around us, what, what types of leaves, what season they're in. Are they blooming? Are the leaves just budding? Are they uh, bare? And if they're bare, we can really see all the different nests up in there, the drays that the squirrels make and the, the crow's nests and the, the smaller nests of the songbirds. These are all over the place, and most of us don't notice that they're there uh, unless we take a second to stop and look up. And what else might I find before I get to the mailbox? Well, probably if we go on a little bit farther along the sidewalk, something small and crawling on the ground would, might catch our eye. A spider in the culvert, a spider web, a line of ants crawling along, maybe a snail hiding in the crack between two pieces of concrete or on a wooden fence. And there's a, just a few of these that we can reliably see in the, in the city. There's a few that really thrive well. So it's not too hard to learn the species and be able to look at them and see what they might be telling us about our surroundings. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nathaniel Johnson. His book is Unseen City, The Majesty of Pigeons, The Discreet Charm of Snails, and Other Wonders of the Urban Wilderness. So, Nate, you talk about crows a lot, and uh, I just had a creepy encounter with a crow. I was walking to work, and he followed me all the way to work as if I was threatening him. And it's just, it kind of scared me. I started thinking of an Alfred Hitchcock movie or something. Uh, <laughs> what should we know about crows? Because I, I think crows seem to be more and more uh, around in cities. Yes, absolutely. People are noticing that. There's this booming population. They're moving more into cities. On the east coast of North America, that's probably because they're moving out of the countries and into the cities. And there's various different hypotheses and reasons why that might be that we can get into. And then on the West Coast, they're just moving across from the East. They weren't naturalized over on the West Coast originally, but there was this trail of habitat that we created for them. They really like lawns because they can go and pull worms and get grubs out of the grass. And they really like trash. We set out all this food that they can eat. And so as we kind of terraformed our way across the U.S., they followed in our path and all this new habitat that we were creating for them in suburbia. And now they've made it to the West Coast and they're just doing great hmm. out here. You're more likely to see crows in cities than where there is no uh, human habitation? Yeah, we're seeing more and more crows in the cities. There's various ideas why that might be. One is that they roost really well in the big trees and in a lot of places, the big trees are the ones that people planted in the town squares and everything else got logged out. Hmm. And so the real tall trees are often in the cities. But the most compelling hypothesis that I found was that cities now have lights at night. And if you're a crow, the most terrifying thing in the world is a great horned owl. A great horned owl is just this huge, fearsome creature that comes in with sharp claws and eats you in the middle of the night. And if you have street lights, it provides some level of protection from those owls. So that may be why they've, they've moved more and more into the cities. In your book, you write about a synanthrope, right. meaning an animal that lives with humans. Would you call a crow a synanthrope? Yeah, Absolutely. They thrive especially well in these habitats that we've created. 
What's another synanthrope? I've never heard that word before. I kind of like it. Yeah, so that's the, the word that these biologists are using. Syn is together, and anthro is human, so with, together with humans. Other good examples of synanthropes are, for example, dandelions. Dandelions have thrived in our footsteps. The European honeybee, you know, we have such fond feelings about the honeybee that we often don't realize that this it's an invasive species that we've brought over and has hmm. really thrived in the United States. The squirrels that we see all around the cities have been introduced by humans and we've created this habitat for them and, and they're thriving in it. So honeybees and squirrels and crows, these kind of animals, they actually favor living in urban environments because for whatever reason, the way we live makes a easier sort of uh, meadow for them to call home. Exactly. We are their niche. Pigeons are another great example. You know, they originally evolved on the cliffs of Sardinia, but that translates really well into a concrete plaza and a high cliff-like skyscraper right next to it, especially when you add in all these humans dropping their french fries and tossing a little bit of bread crust along the way. So that's all uh, encouraging pigeons to call our home their home. Now, for a lot of people, pigeons are kind of disgusting creatures. You as the, um, you know, Mr. Unseen City, the, the subtitle of your book, one of the subtitles is The Majesty of Pigeons. All right, sell us on pigeons. Why are they <laughs> not, why shouldn't we just uh, consider them rats with wings? Well, just to start off with, I, I should acknowledge that, yes, pigeons are legitimately disgusting, often in our cities. And I started out, my pigeon chapter starts out with this real feeling of, of loathing for pigeons. But as I started to research them, I realized that we really made them that way. They're not that way inherently. They're that way in these situations where we provide all of this extra food waste that makes their populations boom and forces them to reproduce in these cramped quarters right next to each other where diseases can spread and all the rest. If we had a little bit of a more healthy relationship with pigeons, they would be fewer in numbers and, and much healthier. So yes, there are issues with pigeons, but gosh, the more I talked with the people that study pigeons, the more taken with them I was because they're, they're just they're these fascinating creatures. They have these really amazing powers of kind of extrasensory perception. They can hear really low sounds. They can sense pressure. They can sense electromagnetism. They have much better eyesight than we do. They can see frequencies that we can't see. And they use all of these things to engage in these complex social patterns. They use it for homing. We still haven't figured out how it is that we can take a pigeon to a completely different place in the world and they're able to find their way back, no matter how hard we try and disable them. The more I learned, the more love I started to feel for these otherwise uh, loathsome beasts. Oh, that's so interesting. And then you could, as you're back in your, wearing your parental hat, uh, when you know a little bit about that, you can go outside, sit down, and actually observe the sort of, I don't know if it's social activity, but but how the pigeons communicate and work together. Yeah, absolutely. My daughter would be out there watching the pigeons, and normally I'm not as curious as she is, right? You know, she can spend a half hour looking at something on the street, and I'm like, let's get to work. Let's, <laughs> let's mm. uh, move along here to the next thing. But after you start to learn a little bit about something, you know, the more you know about 
a person or a place or a species like pigeons, the more you can appreciate them. And if you just know a little bit about pigeons, if you understand that the way that they kind of strut around and, and push each other has to do with defining their territory and showing the other pigeons who their mate is and to stay away from that mate, you can start to see these things and, and see the kind of middle school lunchroom social dynamics that are going on right there on the plaza. Right there, when you say strutting to mark their territory or, to, you know, to make their uh, social statement or whatever, suddenly I have a little better appreciation because all I thought about is oh, they just strut around, you know. But really, what everybody wants to know, why are they missing those toes? <laughs> yeah, well, if you are something of a close observer, you will have noticed this, that there are lots of pigeons that have really mangled, bulbous feet or their foot is missing entirely or they're missing a toe. And when I started to look into this, I came across all of these spurious theories that were just crazy and, and wrong. You know, people thought that uh, cats were eating their feet or that they were getting diseases. But, you know, why would a disease just affect the feet or why would a, a cat just eat the feet? And finally, I tracked down the sort of the foremost expert on feral pigeons. And he assured me that all these theories that I heard were wrong. And the real reason is that they come into contact with these short fibers, threads, and mostly uh, human hair that's on the sidewalk. And because they shuffle their feet, because they walk and slide their feet along rather than hopping like sparrows, these hairs will get tangled up in their toes. And when that happens, they just get uh, knotted and tighter and tighter and eventually cut off the circulation. And they can't get them undone. They're, they're just not able with their beaks oh. to, to remove them. And so it's this sort of terrible, gruesome tourniquet oh. that again, that we have brought, you know, we see, I saw, was looking at these pigeons and thinking, oh my God, that's so disgusting. But uh. again, it's, it's our fault because it's our hair. Oh, oh, well now next time I see a pigeon, I'll have a little more empathy. And, and then have you noticed when you look carefully at their feathers, there's that little green sheen? Yes, exactly. That's one of the things that my daughter helped me see. I, I noticed that there's, there is some iridescence and I, I'd seen, uh, the purple, but she said, oh, there's also the green. And I, I'd never seen that before. So what is it? So that is this fascinating iridescence that's brought about not by pigment, but actually the shape of the feathers. The, the feathers are constructed in such a way that at the nanoscale, they interfere with the light wavelength and, you know, absorb a certain I don't know exactly the physics of how this works, but a certain wavelength of the color and not the rest. And so you get this bouncing back oh, okay. of just some of the frequency that causes this iridescence. And we see the, the green and the purple, but of course the pigeons, because they see in much more frequencies than we do, are probably seeing something much more splendid that we can only dream of. Fascinating. Nathaniel Johnson, the book Unseen City, the long subtitle, The Majesty of Pigeons, The Discreet Charm of Snails, and other wonders of the urban wilderness. Thanks a lot, and best wishes with your uh, teaching and your work. Thank you so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to Digital One in Portland, Oregon, and the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for their help this week. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.